At the Table is sponsored by Restoration Games, and they are excited to announce, nay, I'm excited to announce that they're releasing a Buffy the Vampire Slayer version of Unmatched. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, so I cannot wait to get these iconic characters to the table and play a game of Unmatched with them. You can play as the four major characters such as Buffy, Angel, Willow, and Spike. You have a double-sided battlefield where one side is Sunnydale High and the other side is the Bronze. In addition, each character will have a sidekick. For example, Buffy can have Giles or Xander. Willow has Terra, Spike has Drusilla, which are two of my favorite characters, and Angel has Faith, which is also one of my favorite characters. As with all unmatched games, the art is top-notch, and this is no different with all the art being done by Heather Vaughn. This will be available for order on RestorationGames.com or Mondo Games website. So put on the Once More with Feeling soundtrack and get ready to play Unmatched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's 5x5. Welcome to the Rolling Dice and Taking Names premiere episode of At the Table. In this episode, the guys are at the table with Lindsay and Rob Davio to talk about the role of graphic designers in board games, Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, and play a game of Rankum the Davios will not soon forget, even though they wish they could. There's a lot we all wish we could forget. And welcome back to Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is episode number 211. This is a very special episode here for us. We are so excited. But before we get to why we're excited, I'm Tony. And this is Marty. And Marty, we are excited because we have the powerhouse dynamic duo of board gaming joining us tonight for our introductory at the table, at the mics, drinking whatever we want or whatever we're going to call this. You can edit all this in, but we have with us... <laughs> Lindsay and Rob Davio. And did you look at how I put the correct name first, Marty? Yes, you did, sir. So Rob and Lindsay, welcome to the show. Oh, you got it backwards, Marty. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry, my bad, my bad. (laughs) So we bring these two together to talk to us, not about Rob's recent adventures in board gaming, but Lindsay's adventures of keeping Rob straight in board gaming. We're going to pull back the curtain a little bit because I actually reached out to Rob and I said, Rob, could I contact Lindsay about coming and doing a special segment about what she does at Restoration Games? Because part of this is digging into other jobs and stuff beyond just the designer of what it takes to make a board game. And he went, yes, but can I come on to talk about Pandemic Legacy (laughs) Season Zero? And oh my gosh, yes, Rob, you can come on and talk too. I will be very quiet until the end, and then I will do my little inf- little infomercial. <laughs> I just kind of come in and, and do my 60-second pitch and then smoke bomb out. Actually, we said in the last episode that this was actually just Rob wanted to make sure that he was here as a buffer between you and I, Tony, and Lindsay. Uh, no, that is absolutely not correct at all. <laughs> that is like the lowest of my concerns ever. <laughs> Uh, So, Lindsay, what did Rob fix you for dinner? A salad. Oh, that's lame. (laughs) (laughs) No, but to be fair, he made dinner um, because I'm I'm primarily vegetarian. So he made like steak and and chicken and stuff for himself and 
his son, my stepson Alex, and then I made myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Ooh, okay. Now, did you put any nanas on that? Bananas, <laughs> peanut butter and jelly, or anything like that? I didn't. I put raisins because when I was a kid, I would always have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on cinnamon raisin bread and we don't keep that in the house so i just put raisins instead i feel like i'm the only person who likes raisins so let me ask you this what what is the name of the thing that we used to have as kids i can't it was like you have a celery stick cut in half and you put ants on a log yes did you like that no i don't like celery okay oh i would do it with a banana that would be good Mm. now we'll ask you about this peanut butter jelly and raisins now i enjoy raisins (laughs) Okay, I love okay. it because I have to because trail mix at this house, <laughs> when I go into the bag, for some odd reason, is missing the M&Ms. I don't know what happens between Weird. the time I bring it home and the time that my wife sees it. But yeah. for some reason, I end up with raisins and peanuts and the cashews and the M&Ms and the almonds are all gone. I don't know what Weird. happens, but it does. That's a mystery. It is a mystery, but that's good that you like raisins. Do you enjoy trail mix? <laughs> Lindsay's like, what have I gotten myself into? Rob just nodding on, see, I told you, this is insane, Lindsay, I warned you. I'm actually just, this is what it looks like to sit on the sidelines and watch this sort of nonsense. (laughs) I think I would be like the mystery ghost in your house and just eat the the M&Ms and cashews. So that's about it. And the raisins. I would eat the raisins. Okay, let me tell you this. It is uh, October, and around here we have a special snack for October. It's a special mix that we make that is peanuts, candy corn, and M&Ms all mixed together. It sounds kind of silly, but it is an amazing mix, and it's like a drug around here, and I've already gained three pounds in one week because Uh, of this. I got to take insulin just hearing that pitch. (laughs) (laughs) I want none of that. Luckily, either I became diabetic in 1986, and I think either I was destined not to have a sweet tooth or I just grew out of it. So I hear these really sweet things right now, and I'm like, why would you eat a lot of that? Right, Like a quick little bite, like a little like, ooh, I had half a cookie, and I feel like I'm living large. <laughs> oh my God. I love that you made Marty almost lose his drink just there. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so I will say, Rob, how's that baseball season going? You know what? The Red Sox oh. didn't even play this year. <laughs> <laughs> you, inter- you interpret that how you wish. And so here it was. Finally, I was excited. I'm a big Cincinnati Reds fan. Every team that I pull for, man, never never goes to the postseason for anything. And finally, a team makes it and then goes 0-2 in the opening and then done. None of my teams do anything, Rob. At least you had the Patriots for all those years. They're not doing well right now. You have our old quarterback. What can we say? Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. I want, I'm kind of curious what happens when you know Belichick and, and Brady aren't with each other. And Brady's doing well and Belichick's figuring out his new quarterback and i'm like oh hey 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 do better i don't have anything left to root for let me tell you if uh if cam is healthy he's good he'll be fine he's really good he just needs to learn the system Mm -hmm. he literally just threw an interception as we were talking so oh really okay so marty we've been saying that for how many years was he in carolina yeah, it's about seven or eight years because he's, what, 30? So he came here as like 20, he's 22. Yeah. So, so, Rob, we were waiting for him to learn the system for seven to eight years. <laughs> uh, All right. I'm going to so, just refill my wine. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we've called up everything, Marty. Now let's get to why we are here. We are here to hear about the reason us gamers have such a good time playing games. 
Not the designer side, but the beautiful. (laughs) We've heard that side. But the beautiful side known as graphic design that lets us understand what was in that designer's mind. Now, Lindsay, what is your role at Restoration Games? I know y'all have these fancy (laughs) titles, but... Oh, I forgot about the fancy titles. Technically, my role is production superhero because mm-hmm. they let us make up our own name. And I was feeling very good at the time right? <laughs> <laughs> I decided what my title would be. So we have two on-staff graphic designers. It's myself and Jason Taylor, who is basically a genius. So basically the whole pipeline of art for a board game starts with like the idea. You know, once we play a rough prototype from the, the game designer... Uh, we have to think about like visually what's going to be the look, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what's going to be the color scheme? What's the vibe? Who's the audience, right? And we have to figure all that out, find artists and kind of like set the tone. Jason does most of like we'll we'll have a conversation and, and kind of talk about stuff. But he he does more of the beginning stuff. But at the very end, the opposite end, you need to send the files to the manufacturer to print. So that's that's very detail oriented it's making sure you know all the art fits the die lines it's basically like dotting the i's and crossing the t's but for art Mm -hmm. so that is my department we kind of share everything in the messy middle so you're you're the quality assurance yes exactly i'm qa well you do more than QA. You're selling yourself short. Tell us what really happened. Well, I'm saying like, <laughs> you know, like a writer writes something or a de- designer designs something. You're like, this is great. And then you bring in an editor or a developer to go, yeah, it is great, but... And then they make it better. That's what Lindsay does with graphics with Jason. I definitely think of myself as an editor. Like how, uh, how game designers have developers and book authors have editors. That's what I do for graphic design. I have no idea if other people in the world do that or what that role is called. That's just kind of what I ended up doing at Restoration Games, but I love it because I love art, but I'm I'm very detail-oriented and very mathy, but I also love games. So, it's a it's an interesting intersection where I can see how graphic design and colors and iconography and everything can contribute to players having a better experience playing the game, you know, where the art can help you make your moves more intuitive or something. And I love, I love the problem solving aspect of it. I love how can we make this game more fun and easier to learn through art. And I actually got to see you in action because uh, last year in early 2019, Rob and Lindsay, you had a whole group that came down to Charlotte and hang out, hung out for the weekend. Yeah. And you invited us over and that was, uh, we got to play a prototype of Unmatched. Yeah, before it was released. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, man, this is really cool. And I remember we were looking at the uh, art and the, uh, the the typeface on the cards. I was like, man, man, that's kind of small. And then all of a sudden, Lindsay whips out her laptop and she starts typing. It's like, how does that look? It's like, oh, wow, that looks really good. So we got to see her do her magic right there for us because she was showing us the actual art on the cards and everything. So she was adjusting it and tweaking it, making it easier to read and changing typeface. And, and I'm, I'm using the right word, typeface, because Chris Kirkman gets on me because I say font and he says it's not font. That's a Rob question because to me, for what I do, it, it doesn't matter. Like, it's okay. just me and Jason talking. We know what we mean. Rob has opinions on this. I don't have opinions. I worked with a guy who used to do letterpress type in the 90s. He had opinions, <laughs> right? That a typeface <laughs> is like 
Times New Roman or Palatino or Helvetica, and a font was a collection, like a dozen, like a set. It was like the collective noun, like I would like a font of Palatino, and you would get all the letters you would use for it. And then someone at Apple in the 80s who did the Mac, like decided that font meant typeface, and that's what everyone calls now, but language is always changing. So I'm not, I don't really care. And I probably mangled it a little because I haven't heard the lecture in about 25 years. <laughs> but yes, I think technically it was typeface. But since words change usage, font is probably correct now. So Marty, I remember that play test very well because mm-hmm. um, this was an early like physical, you know, prototype play test of Unmatched. The consensus we came from this was that the font was great, except for the numeral one which there's a lot of in unmatched for like attacking and and the boost numbers and sometimes in the effects. What I had to do is I kept the font, but every time a numeral one appears, that one character is a different font than everything else in the rest of the game. Oh, that's Ooh. right. Do we think it would look like an L or uh, or something like that? I can't remember what it was. We we mistook it for something yeah, else. Ones are weird because either just a line, which looks like an L or it looks like a seven. Yeah. You know what's yeah. funny is I I see that font like in the world sometimes and I can always recognize it because of the one that I had to replace. <laughs> so, Lindsay, are you also responsible for iconography? Cleaning that up, redesigning that, making that work? I think Jason does more iconography. Okay. Basically, he he's the idea guy and then I clean it up. You got me 80% the way there, but now I need to make it so that it'll print appropriately. And the way we want it to look. So it doesn't come out some big mangled mesh. Some, yeah. Yeah, some, some, what was the artist? Dolly? You know, a bunch of melted yeah. clocks. Okay. Yeah. Are you also the one that's responsible for making sure that when they go to print, that the money actually is in where the cutouts are going to be instead of half circles? Because we've run across a few games where... You mean for like punch punching out and, it's, and the die cut's not exactly right? Are you sponsor, responsible for that QA as well? <laughs> yes. I'm responsible for making sure the art is supposed to be in relationship to the die line, but if it's that far off, could it's either a problem with the artist or with the manufacturer. <laughs> so I'll take half responsibility for that. Tell them what you did with indulgence. This is my favorite money <laughs> okay. thing. Indulgence is our trick-taking game. It's based in like Renaissance Italy. And the coins look kind of like hand-stamped coins, mm-hmm. so they have like kind of rough edges. They, they're supposed to look like kind of handmade and um, they're all circles. And I know like for any, any game, anytime you do a punch board, there's always a risk of the die shifting a little bit from where it's supposed to be on the art. And so you, if that happens, you'll end up with either, you know, all the art is down in the lower right corner or something, or, you know, in, in a really bad situation, you end up with half a coin <laughs> where there should be a whole coin. But so what I did was knowing that this, shifting could happen I rotated the coins in lots of different directions like so some were upside down some were sideways some were sideways the other way so that if the die shifted the coins wouldn't all be shifted over to the lower right corner or something they would all be in different directions to kind Mm -hmm. of make it feel more handmade stuff and honestly our manufacturer is excellent and I I don't think the die shifted noticeably on any copy that I've seen but if it ever did it would just make the, the coins look more, like, organic. Hmm. It's just, I don't know, it was a, a cool... It's, it's very easy to do, right? It's, like, one extra step to rotate some of the numbers. 
I thought it was a nice effect. Well, you often hear us quote reviewers, air quotes, talk about, you know, the, the artwork and the gameplay and how both are usually ranked, um, for me, similar. I mean, we've come across, Marty and I've come across where, you know, great game, but oh my God, I can't look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it is yeah. absolutely ugly. And so that's one of those things where we're counting on you to bring that pleasing quality to a game. And we I'll thank try. you for it. I know. <laughs> well, so let me ask you this then. So here's, here's a question about what is the difference between this role and this role? So Oliver Barrett did the original mm. art uh, for a lot of the cards. So Her Unmatched, yeah. Yeah. So he's the artist and who did the art, the pictures, but then there's the graphic artist. I mean, are those two roles separate? Are they ever the same person? What, what's the difference between those two exactly? Um, they can be the same person, but Oliver Baird is the illustrator. Okay. So he created all of the, the pictures, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like all the pictures of King Arthur and Merlin and stuff that go inside the frames. But Jason and I created the frames. And a guy, Jay Shaw, who's not with Mondo anymore. But So the graphic design is usually more like like lines and shapes and, and text and stuff. It's more like usually more clean elements, whereas illustration is more like the pictures, like a painting kind of. Does that make sense? Yes. Do the illustrators do the coloring or just like lines? Because now I'm, I'm thinking about comic books because, you know, comic books yeah. have like the, the line artists and they have colorers that come in and fill in the colors. I would say that all of the illustrators I've worked with working on board games do both, both like the concept sketching and finishing coloring it up. It's interesting. I, I've only heard of that, that kind of relationship in comic books. Mm. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist somewhere else. Um, I, I just haven't heard of it, but it is curious why that one is like a, a unique. I think I just figured it out just because I've been half-heartedly writing a comic book, mostly oh. like, most like mm. in April or May. And then I put it to the side. I'm like, I'll get back to this in a week. It's been six <laughs> months. The writer writes a script and then it's almost like the penciler is doing a storyboard. They are really mm. thinking of what's in the front, what's in the back. They are really composing like a director, the shots of the movie. So mm -hmm. their job is, yes, to draw it out, but mostly I think like this is foreground or this is background or this is a building in the background. And it takes so much time to compose the page and where the words are going to go that they don't have time to go back and do finishing work. So then a second illustrator comes in and goes, oh, I see this is how this is supposed to work and does the tighter version over the pencils because a lot of the penciler's job is spent thinking of composition. We do something similar for very big projects like Return to Dark Tower obviously is a huge game and it's a huge undertaking so we hired a couple concept artists that would draw what they thought the characters could look like or what the lands could look like or whatever and then um, a different artist would do their own sketch and and paint it but they didn't have to like come up with the original idea as well so it's similar not exactly the same but similar See, you're blowing my mind here. This is beyond <laughs> anything that I thought. I mean, you've got an artist comes in, a concept artist, and then you got this artist coming in, and you got these people, as Rob just said, putting it all together, cleaning it up. I mean, it's, I guess, to us uneducated people, that you don't realize what it takes to put a board game together. Yeah. Well, especially Return to Dark Tower, you're jumping into the deep end. That's easily the biggest game I've ever worked on. 
10 artists on this game. And we've been talking about uh, a lot. I guess when I, we're thinking about like, cards and stuff like that. But yeah. the graphic artist also designs the layout of a game board or player boards. Do they do that too? Yeah, it depends on what game, right? So, so it's funny because like, what can I talk about? Talk about Unmatt. Talk about Cobble and Fog. I think Cobble and Fog is a great example that has illustration, graphic design, yeah. color editing, rule books, cards. Cobble and Fog for the game board, because that's what you're asking about. I would get the rough concept that had been play tested by Rob and his team. I would go in and make sure that the like the physical size of the game board was correct and the size of the spaces was correct and that, that the lines were like as close to being similar all around the board as possible. So basically I, I look at it through my filter of knowing that it has to eventually be printed um, to make sure everything looks good. And then we send that to an illustrator. In this case, it's Ian O'Toole, who's amazing and has done a bazillion board games and really knows his stuff. So that's very helpful because he understands that people are going to have to play on it and like what the, the end use of this art will be. So he'll, he'll take that and he'll make a sketch, right? Kind of like the, the line artists in comics, right? And then we'll make sure that, you know, all the walls he made look like they're in the right spot and that the, the zones look like they make sense. And we'll go back and forth once or twice with him on the sketch. He'll take it to color. So he'll, he'll paint on it like digitally. Most artists, I think in board games work digitally, usually like with a Wacom or something like a big tablet that they use a stylus on. Like a digitizer? Yeah. Some artists work traditionally, like with actual like paint and stuff. But a lot of people in board games, I think, work digitally. So yeah, and then we'll get that illustration and then I'll take it and uh, I, I basically just color edit it to make sure that it's going to end up printing the way that we can see it on the screen, if that makes sense. So what you see on the screen is not going to come out of the printer looking like it looks on the screen, which is very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> In general, it's mostly that printouts come out darker than what you can see on the screen. So I have to lighten everything, but so that you can't tell it's been lightened, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like I need to... I need to keep the integrity of the art and the illustration and make it look like I haven't done anything, but make it look lighter so that it'll print like we want it to print. Let me think of a more specific example. So like the player boards on Dark Tower. Yeah. Uh, so that has information on it of like, you know, stats and storing things. So there's a function to it. Yes. Who designs like the layout of that? The function is like, well, we want this here. We want these words here because we want the player to understand what's going on. It's more than just, oh, that's pretty to look at. It has a function behind it. So who puts that together? That's a graphic designer. So specifically in this case, it's honestly between Jason and I, whoever has time at that Mm -hmm. point. (laughs) We We both have experience doing stuff like that. Honestly, it usually goes back and forth where like, he does one version, then I do the next version, and it, it keeps changing back and forth for a while until it goes to the printer. And when do you know it's done? When do you say, hey, we're done with this? When my deadline is, <laughs> is passed. 
when it's a week past my deadline. Well, <laughs> I assume just like with uh, with Rob getting uh, play testing uh, done, I guess you probably run this. Do you run this by users or, or players? It's like and see, man, that they didn't use that board the way I thought they would, or this was confusing to them. Time to go back and tweak and adjust. In the perfect world, yes. I love getting that kind of feedback. There's always going to be something that doesn't work the way you think it's going to work. So I love getting that kind of playtesting feedback. A lot of times we don't have time to do that. The good thing is that myself and Jason have been doing graphic design and art direction for board games for over a decade each. So usually our instincts are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usability testing is is fantastic whenever we can do it. Where's the crunch time here? Is it getting it so that you don't have time? So you're, you're saying that you don't have, that you, you get down to these crunch time. Is there always those delays? I mean, it's totally my fault. She's at the end okay. of the. She's at the end of the train. So if, uh-huh. if if game design takes an extra week, and then the rulebook editor takes an extra week, and then the illustrator's two weeks late, and then we get to the end of like, hey, your deadline wins. We know you need a month to do all this. You have a day. Okay, that's what I was trying to get to. I figured it was whose fault it was. I just wanted it on record. <laughs> 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 so you said you've been doing this for a lot, for like a decade. So we, we know what you're doing now and, and your roles, but let's go back years to little Lindsay. How did you get oh. on the path to becoming <laughs> a graphic designer? I always loved art since I was little, little, like as soon as I could hold a crayon, I was always drawing on something. Hold on. Did you have the 64 count box with the built-in oh sharpener? Gosh. I'm sure I did. That was the envy of everybody who had Crayolas is having the built-in sharpener. You remember that, yeah. Rob, right? Rob's not <laughs> even paying attention anymore. <laughs> Sorry, just edit out that little gap. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that, Marty. My crayon box. There you go. My crayon box only went up to eight, though, so I, I, I could never tell the difference between green, blue, and blue, green. So, but but along those lines. And this was on our past show. Do you feel that sidewalk chalk is a toy, Lindsay? Oh, that's a good question. I know it's a good question. Thank you. I get one every interview. (laughs) Well, the reason why we ask is a strong toy hall of fame has nominated sidewalk chalk as one of the toys for this year as a toy to go in the hall of fame. And somebody and I had a discussion about how could it be a toy? Sidewalk chalk is not a toy. It's chalk. It is used to draw on the sidewalk. Lindsay. All right. So here's what I think. I think that chalk could be categorized as like an art supply or art material. Mm -hmm. However, Kids will use anything they want as a toy. Like a box could be a toy or a stick Mm -hmm. could be a toy. So in that case, I feel like anything is a toy. And a stick is in the Hall of Fame, by the way. It was nominated. Yes. So, all right. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Let's go back to the little Lindsay who (laughs) loved crayons. So I, I loved all kinds of art, right? Like I would, I would paint and I would make stuff out of clay and anything I could get my hands on. I was always making all kinds of stuff. And I always thought I wanted to be an artist, but I I really didn't know what that looked like outside of like making paintings that would go in galleries or selling crafts at a craft fair. That was my, the extent of my worldview of what an artist does. And then when I was maybe a freshman in high school, something like that, my mom took a like continuing education class in graphic design. And that's how I got exposed to that even existing 
And I was, I was basically instantly in love because I love art, but I don't have like a lot of strong feelings that I feel like I need to express with my art. Right. I, I like graphic design because it's art that solves a problem. Like I like having a challenge that I can solve. Hmm. It works really well for me and how my brain works. And, uh, took a couple classes in high school. Like I taught myself illustrator and Photoshop. And I just was kind of always doing stuff on my own throughout high school and college. On my birthday, senior year of college, my friend's boyfriend at the time hired me to make some posters and marketing materials for a show that he was putting on in Boston. And it was my first paying graphic design gig. Nice. And it was, it was probably one of the best birthday presents I've ever gotten. Very cool. So you got a degree in graphic design. I actually didn't. I went to school for engineering psychology. <laughs> which, what? Uh, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> engineering psychology. Yeah, welcome to New England. Yeah, it, it doesn't mean it's, it's So it's basically ergonomics, basically. It's oh. like how humans interact with things around them, whether the thing is your chair or your computer mm. interface or your the workspace in your office. Or a board game. I mean, I really think this has helped you. Or a board game. Yeah. How do you interact with this abstract engine and what do you need in front of you? The whole mm -hmm. concept is, is basically making things that people use easier and safer to use. The concept I thought was very intriguing. I didn't end up enjoying the major very much. I didn't realize that till the end of my sophomore year. And I had the choice of either changing my major or continuing my plans to go abroad to London my junior year of college. And I really, really wanted to go abroad to London. So I decided to stick with my plans, just finish out my major and then figure out what happened after that. Okay. I graduated with a degree that I didn't particularly want. And then I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and got a part-time job at Hasbro Toys, <gasps> making fake toy boxes. <laughs> this is so bizarre to me that this exists. I don't know if it still does. This was 2002. So big stores like, like a Walmart or a Target would want to see what their lineup was going to look like for the next year, mm -hmm. but they didn't want to just see it like on a computer or like flat printouts, they had like fake stores that were full of fake products. So they could walk around and see what the product was going to look like on the shelf. So we would sit there all day and make fake game boxes and mail these empty fake toy boxes to these stores. And that was my job for a year and a half. I mean, you're talking like any type of action figure, anything like that, a magic eight yeah. ball box or anything like that. Yeah. But think about what you were doing there. You are setting up the commercialism for someone like me to walk down and it will catch my eye. I mean, it's very important. Don't sell that job short. You're making me spend money. You are driving the economy of the American people. All right. There you go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's weird that the, the large stores need to see the physical, the 3D physical fake packages. But I did really enjoy that job. And I, I really love my boss from the time who I'm still in touch with. Mm. And it's what set me up to get my job at Hasbro Games, 
which is where I met my husband. Ta-da! Hey, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I was getting, no, I was getting ready to ask that. Was that Rob? <laughs> so far. <laughs> it's also where I met Jason Taylor, the art director at Restoration Games, who hired me. So Ooh. Rob likes to call him our Cupid. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Does he wear a diaper? I don't know. The Zoom, the Zoom calls are from the waist up. I have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> what are some of your games you've worked on besides the restoration stuff? We know that. Yeah. What's some of the other ones? Back over at Hasbro. I got to work on the base game Monopoly one time. All of the games at Hasbro, at least at the time, had a five-digit code. So you could like know, you know, what skew you were working on. And I don't remember any of them except the base game Monopoly was number nine. Zero, 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 nine. Yeah, it was like the ninth game in their catalog. So getting to work on the number nine Monopoly was a big deal. It was when we added a speed die because obviously games of Monopoly take too long when you don't play by the rules, when you play with house rules. So they added an extra die that would like speed things up or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I got to work on that. That was fun. Did you work on Tropical Paradise Monopoly? I didn't. Rob did, though, yeah, I designed right? it. You know that. You're just setting up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm catching up, man. <laughs> my, my first game that I ever worked on was Disney Princess Monopoly Jr. I am was still junior? so proud. Of it. Yeah, Mon- Monopoly Jr. It's for kids like five to eight or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And why were you so proud? Because I got to make board games. People were paying me to make board games. So was there anything between Hasbro and Restoration Games? (laughs) There was Yankee Candle. Whoa. Okay. Everybody just hold the presses. (laughs) I love Yankee Candle. And I'm very bummed because the Yankee Candle right here is closed because of, you know, what's going on and everything. And I can't get my false sense. I need my candy corn tart, people. I'm sorry. I'm going down a tangent here. (laughs) Deep, deep breaths, Marty. Deep breaths. (laughs) Hey, Marty, there's this thing called the internet. I bet if you go to yankeecandle.com or something, you could get that scent. I don't want to talk to you right now. Um, so <laughs> did, did you did you do the packaging design for Yankee Candle or like yeah. the uh, the graphics for the uh, the store or stuff like that? I didn't know. I did the design for the candles. <gasps> yeah. This is the most important thing I've learned from this interview. Right there. <laughs> Their headquarters are 45 minutes north of us. Do they have a storefront? They have a yeah, they have a huge flagship store. They have a section of the store that's Christmas all year round. And it snows inside. It's so cute. Hey, Rob, what's the score of the game? Let's man up here. Uh, it's 6-3 uh, six, six, Kansas City. It's a, it's a defensive game here. Uh, no, you know, actually, it was, it was wonderful because Hasbro moved our jobs the week we were getting married in 2011. So we, we sort of tried to keep our uh, jobs for a year. And we had uh, a home here in Western Massachusetts where... Uh, my kids are, and then we had a little apartment in Providence. So it was like this weird double life of like parent with kids, with you know stepmom, and then like young married couple in the city. But mm-hmm. it was it was kind of grueling. It was like being on a business trip for a year. Every four days, you just change location. Oh, it was very tiring. So we ended up leaving. I ended up deciding to start my own company, which now has worked out very well. But from 2012 to 2015 was just not a lot of money for a lot of work to get all these things ramped up. Lindsay was working at Yankee Candle at that time, which she did not like as much as board games and basically just carried us while I got my business going. 
And then pandemic legacy hit. And we were like, eh, let's just work together. Right. Like it was, a, I, I said, maybe it's just a year. This was a good year with pandemic legacy. Maybe this only lasts one year, but you want to get back in board games. And we started working together. And then that's when restoration was starting. And so she was supposed to spend half the time at restoration and half the time helping me with original ideas. But turns out restoration needs all of her time. And Rob, I must say that is about the most perfect transition that's ever happened on this show. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> because, yeah, bravo, sir, bravo. Because Z-Man is getting ready to release the latest, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the final Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. So why don't you catch us up on that? Funny you bring that up, Marty. I'm glad you uh, moved over to that topic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Pandemic Legacy Season Zero is the third and final installment in a trilogy. Uh, it will be out October 23rd, whatever that Friday is. I believe that's the 23rd. And it is the, the third game in the series, but it is a prequel. So we had Season 1, which takes place basically now. Season 2, which is post-apocalyptic about 70 years in the future. And when Matt and I were in the middle of Season 2, we were like, okay, how many of these are we doing? We decided three. Like, do we do a post post apocalyptic? It's just trees and nature, and all humans are dead. Right? Like, where do where do you go after that? Right? Just the ocean is regrowing. Uh, so we said, well, let's do a prequel, and we went back, and this takes place in 1962, and it's a Cold War thriller. Mm -hmm. All of our games are roughly based on an arch like an archetype of a movie genre. Mm -hmm. So season one. This is like the mildest of spoilers, but come on, it's been out five years. Yeah, uh, yeah. is is loosely is based on like a summer action blockbuster, and we really liked the Winter Soldier, which was out at the time. Captain America, the Winter Soldier, like oh, we like that vibe, right? Like that these heroes up against stuff, and there's unknown factors and good guys and bad guys. Um, season two was a mishmash of a lot of post-apocalyptic movies or zombie movies, and then so for season zero, we went back and we did uh, early '60s spy movies. Yeah. So Three Days of the Condor, some early Sean Connery, James Bond, um, all of the tropes. Like we just made a list of all of the tropes. Like, okay, we need an exploding briefcase and we need – that didn't make it in. But the note from day one, which is you need to be able to buy an item called a gunbrella, did make it in. <laughs> <laughs> so how mechanic uh, – what are some of the mechanisms that are different between season one, season two? I mean, because it, it – you did a great job of season one and season two feeling totally different. So how did you do with this third to make it feel different than the other two? Um, we did this thing called game design. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Lindsay, let's little Lindsay again and crayon. <laughs> I'm sorry. I could not help it. I sat here so quiet for like 40 minutes. I, all my snark came out at once. So, but Marty, you need to come back on that because here he is with that snark back and he says, Well, good, Rob. We're glad you're finally experiencing game design in your career. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you got it. Yeah. You know, just take that and judo it right back. Use my energy. <laughs> and bring it right back to you, Tony. Good line. Um, no, Matt and I were concerned. Like season one starts out, and you're basically playing Pandemic, but you play like twelve to eighteen games of it, and and so season two we wanted to do something different, so you don't feel like you're starting on game nineteen and continuing. The Pandemic system is pretty robust. You know, Matt's work either with other people or by himself on Rome and Amsterdam and Spain has shown that the general system has, you know, some versatility. So we did sit down and said, how do we make 
the core system a little bit different. The beginning of the game starts with no diseases. You are doctors or recent medical school graduates who are recruited by the CIA to become spies. They figured easier to turn a doctor into a spy than teach a spy medicine. And now you're being sent out on the field because there's rumors of a Soviet bio, you know, weapon being developed. And so you're going around. And so since there are no uh, diseases at the beginning, there's nothing to do with those five cards. Usually in pandemic, you have five cards and that's how you make a cure. So what did you do there? And we decided that the idea is, yeah, you're you're sort of lone agents, but you're, you end up being middle management. You meld five cards and you create a little team, which is an unmarked white van, which <laughs> which drives around the board. And any player can use some of their actions to move or activate the van. And this is your team that's going around. And you need these teams to complete missions. So if you have a mission that you have to be in Novosibirsk and you know you need a team in Novosibirsk to do something, it took me forever to learn that. So I'm going to always use that name as an example. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone can say Paris. <laughs> and so you need to like get five cards to make this team, but it's not five of any card. It's five Soviet cards. Because that's another thing we did is some of the cities and the cards are Western NATO allied some are mm-hmm. Soviet Eastern Bloc, and some are neutral or unaffiliated or please don't nuke us, right, like the rest of the world. So when you spend five NATO cards, you make a NATO team. And what that means, that team has the alias and knowledge to work in those cities. If you make a Soviet team, it works in those cities. And, and they're useful in different ways. So you've got these spy tropes. You've got teams. It's harder to get into Soviet cities. And the the big thing that I like, which you get a glimpse of at the beginning, but it's really developed as you play the legacy game, is at the beginning of the game, you get this lovely little leatherette passport, and Z-Man did a good job. You have three aliases in it, and you start of January, even though it's January, it's not a spoiler, we tell you in the rules that you're going to do this. You make an alias where you get these little stickers where you give yourself like a mustache and a pipe. And you give yourself a name and that's your alias and that has all your powers and your weaknesses and your contacts. Then at some point in the game, you don't know when, you'll be able to create a second alias. And this alias will have a different look and a different name and different powers. So instead of saying, I'm playing the medic in this game and then I'm going to play the researcher in a different game, you can play the medic and researcher in the same game. You just have to do a quick costume change. Oh, in a, okay. You know, and then go out. So it's like, okay, I'm a medic. I'm going to pop into a safe house, do, 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 little change of costume. Now I'm a businessman flying. I'm an aluminum salesman flying up to <laughs> Prague. Very cool. And uh, so I, I, it's the same sort of, uh, you're playing a, a calendar year, right? One paying through 12 months. You're playing through 12 like months, but we did shorten it. The idea is that <coughs> you have to edit that out. Oh, I'm leaving it now. <laughs> <laughs> We did shorten it in such a way that usually you just win or you lose in the original one. And if you lose, you have to do the month again. But this game really does explore the gray area between right and wrong. And the Cold War wasn't necessarily – it's about ideologies, Mm -hmm. you know, and and competing ideologies versus competing like lawful good and lawful evil or something. Every side casts themselves as a good guy. So in this game, you can win, you can lose, or you can get a good enough. Right. Like you could get like there's like a middle gray area now, which is we're just going to move on. You didn't really crush it, but you did well enough. And and the clock is ticking. And this one tries to actually paint the biggest story of the three of them. There's actually a chapter book that you read. Like if you complete a mission, you will read a little like, okay, when you complete a mission, you read the debrief book and it tells you what information you get. Mm -hmm. If you have three missions and you only complete two, 
then the game says good enough and you just move on, but you never got the debrief on the third mission, so you're missing a piece of evidence or vital information. So when you get to the next one and you learn something, you're like, two different groups will have two different interpretations of that depending on which missions they've completed or not completed. That's, that's almost like a, a Arkham Horror LCG in that when you, I don't know if you've played that, but when you play a scenario, there's multiple ways to, it's not like uh, the original Lord of the Rings LCG where you play over and over again until you beat it. It's just when you get to the end, you may have successfully done this, this, or this. And in the book, it says, how did you end scenario one, two, three, or four? Mm-hmm. And then you read that little part, but you don't know how the others would have ended. And then it kind of carries on from yeah, there. Yeah, we, we did that. I mean, you can't really make it super branching in a legacy game because it starts to, you need 64 different endings or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we really do put you right from the pro- prologue into this sort of muddy middle where you're like, you've got handlers and you've got Soviets and there's an agent who refuses to come in out of the cold, and they're all telling you something different. And it's like, go ahead. You do the right thing, giving conflicting information. Without giving anything away, are we tearing cards? We have. Um, we just say that you can destroy a card, and we say in the rules, destroy means you don't need it in this game. Do with it what you want. Ah, uh, because, you know, that was a big hang-up, because that's a beautiful graphic designer thing right there where you're tearing <laughs> up somebody's hard, hard work. Uh, so it's interesting. The whole tearing up cards with legacy games came because it was part of Risk was the first legacy game. And Risk Mm -hmm. is very macho and very in your face and I've conquered your territory. Mm -hmm. And taking something from someone and ripping it up permanently sort of fit (laughs) into the table flipping rage that Risk tends to promote. So that's why it was in there. I'm like, this is so over the top that only Risk could do it. But it has really become what people identify with legacy games. And every legacy game that I've done, I have moved away from it because the only point is no this card is just not part of this game anymore mm-hmm. i don't care what you do with it you can tuck <laughs> it in a tray you can put it in a plastic bag you can sleeve it and put it in a safe deposit box like i really it just it's just not part of this game world anymore so going from risk and now it's actually been 10 years into modern games wow i've definitely moved away because it tends to steal focus from the other parts of the game because it's so outrageous, but it was outrageous because it was risk and because I didn't think that I would dare to do it. And so I just kept it in there. I'm like, I'm not going to put a game where you rip cards. I'm not going to put, and I just sort of kept it in and people are like, Oh, this is kind of fun. I'm like, okay. And then I waited for the next group and the next, I just kept waiting for someone to say, stop it. You're an idiot. And everyone was like, Oh yeah. That was crazy. And I'm like, okay, let's just go with it. When you were working on the detective story as well as Pandemic Legacy Zero, Season Zero, did you ever get lost? Or was there, were the two projects separate? I'm just curious if there was any bleed over or anything like that. There wasn't because of timing. Pandemic Legacy was largely done by April of 2019, which was about when I was really ramping up on Detective. And Detective mm-hmm. is very much a true mystery. I loved writing it. It hasn't sold all that well. And the reviews are like fine, but it didn't, it was sort of like was this little quiet release. But I really loved going in. I was going to be a television writer first Mm -hmm. in my life. So going in and blocking out a television episode. Okay, here is the murder victim. What do we know? Okay, what are the five things you might think at the beginning? What are the red herrings? If you get too far off the path, how do we bring you back in? Because you don't want to play a game where you go down the wrong path and you just keep going. Right, like what are the bumpers and what are the stuff? So I don't know if I'll do another one, but I loved 
writing that, but it was a complete side diversion because it was really like writing an episode of TV in game form. Whereas Pandemic Legacy is more, here is a pandemic game with some spy tropes on top of it. Okay. So, Lindsay, do you get involved in any of the rulebook layouts or graphic design, graphic artists around that, the images there? Do you help with that? Yeah, uh, I do a lot of that. One of the, the biggest challenges was when we did the second edition of Stop Thief, because in the first edition, we really only talked about the competitive game, but we wanted to include all the rules for the cooperative game in the second edition. It was such a challenge to figure out how to combine these two rule books. So it wasn't like, here's all the rules you read for the competitive game. Here's all the rules that you read for the cooperative game. 70% of that overlap. You don't want to have to read 70% of the same text twice and then have to like figure out what the, the couple things that are different are. Mm-hmm. So that one was a, a huge challenge and I'm, I'm really pleased with how it came out. So you should probably go get a copy of Stop Keep Second Edition. <laughs> so you there you go. <laughs> Always be closing. There you go. So you got your hands and everything and rule books and, and, yeah. and the actual board game itself and cards, et cetera. Well, also yeah. prototypes. Mm. Uh, one thing that she didn't mention is uh, besides, you know, all of that cutting boxes for Hasbro mm-hmm. back in the day and the, all of the artists made her like a craft wizard with an mm-hmm. exacto blade. Like for Pandemic Legacy, she would cut the dossiers out, the handmade dossiers, and with an exacto knife, cut perforations. Just take an exacto knife and go like up and down like a <laughs> sewing machine, like and make the scratch off material. Yeah, make home scratch off material. Fun fact: it's just acrylic paint and dish soap on top of scotch tape. On top of yeah, you have to put tape on top of the paper, uh-huh. so that it it will like it won't ruin the print underneath. But then it sticks on enough until you try to scratch it off. Are we a one-in-one combination here on the acrylic and dish soap? Or is there, what's, the, what's our, if I want to make my own scratch-offs? Yeah, I think one-to-one is, is fine. It's not so scientific. <laughs> Mixing wow. two chemicals together is not scientific. No, not at all. <laughs> we don't know what could go wrong here. <laughs> but in addition to the, like, the actual literal helping of turning a concept into a physical prototype, one thing that's invaluable, no matter which, whether it's restoration or original games, is when she's working on a prototype, she'll immediately be like, this is too big for the table. Or, you know, this need, this piece needs to be bigger because the tolerance of the punch board isn't going to work. Or these spaces need to be further apart. Or you're not going to be able to see this upside down. Mm-hmm. So her brain is already thinking of not only the usability for the player but also the problems that manufacturing will run into if we go this way. So the prototype in the early stage gets tweaked so that her job gets a little easier at the end, even though it's still three weeks late because of me. See, I, that's the really interesting uh, aspect to me because uh, Tony and I are, are engineers. So we're like, you know, problem solvers. So it's really cool to say that you see it as I'm solving a problem through graphic design and art and stuff like that. So I can really relate yeah. to that. I think that's that's really cool. And I appreciate you saying, oh, this this is a table hog. We need to do something <laughs> about this. You know, this yeah. board yeah. game is just too huge. Where are they going to put their pieces? Yeah, you you might need another table for Return to Dark Tower. Oh, boy. She's, I can't, she's a big one. 
Yeah. Cannot wait for that one. So here's the thing. We know, Rob, that you are very much into designing games and uh, Lindsay, you are into graphic art. But when you want to take a break from the day-to-day grind of your jobs, what is it you like to do aside from board games? Put all, you don't, you know, I don't want to see another board game. So what are you going to do in its stead? Pre-COVID or during COVID? Let's say in normal life. <laughs> okay. What is normal life now? Uh, my, mine is uh, food and travel. So either cooking food or going out to restaurants mm. and then travel to different places and seeing their food. And, and their yes. old rocks on top of old rocks will always get me excited. Like, look at that wall. It's almost fallen apart. <laughs> Not so exciting in Arkansas. Very exciting in Scotland. Let me, let me ask you, do you have any desire, like you said, you'd like to go out and try different food and stuff, to actually review different places you go? Like, do a... No, no, okay, never mind. No, I have learned... I have learned if you make your hobby your job, then it's a job. Well, no, no, no. I'm just talking about for fun. Like, I'm going to make a little blog post about what I thought about this restaurant or something no. like that. No, nope. no, no. Just nope. to, uh, we'll it's, an we'll Instagram do a, a story. Mini review on Twitter. Yeah, I'll yeah I'll complain on Twitter. <laughs> and so, Lindsay, when you aren't traveling around with him to to different restaurants or eating some of his delicious food, what is it you like to do? I know I should have been ready for this. I want to say something interesting, like. <laughs> crafting because i'm sitting in my basement which is basically a a michael's craft store and like sometimes like i sewed a bunch of masks at the beginning of covid and and you know sometimes i'll you know take up some knitting or something like that but but really when i want to wind down i'm i'm really just watching tv (laughs) ain't nothing wrong with that what are you watching right now what's some shows especially during the time when you've been spending there's a new season of The Great British Baking Show on Netflix. Literally the greatest show yeah. that has happened. We're supposed to watch the next episode. Hopefully when we finish with uh, y'all, we, we fell in love with it. In fact, get this. Tony doesn't know about this. Th- this show that we're doing where we're interviewing people, I've actually tried to reach out to Kim Joy. Uh, you remember her from several seasons ago? She's a board gamer who was also a finalist on like season five. Well, see, here's the thing about me is I have such a terrible memory. I think I'm just going to start watching them all again from the beginning because I won't remember. Oh, I remember I remember Kim Joy. I remember Kim uh, Joy. But, but anyway, she's releasing a uh, cookbook uh, for Christmas and yeah. my wife fell in love with her and uh, her personality on the show. And she's, she's also working with James Hudson over at Druid City Games on a little card game. Oh, wow. I thought she'd be a fantastic guest for something like this yeah. to hear about, you know, cooking and her enjoy enjoying the board games and stuff. And my wife was like, I want to be on that show because I want to talk to yeah. Kim So is that the one where we got the return to sender emails? We got like 20 of those. <laughs> no, that, was, <laughs> that was just most publishers we contact now. So, oh, no. <laughs> but yes, a big fan of the uh, great British baking show. And I love that uh, Matt, I can't think of his last name is uh, host this season. Along with he's Noel. so good. He's so good. I really liked him right away. Did you watch him on Doctor Who? No. He was a no. he was a series regular on Doctor Who for a few oh, years, really? and that's where I got to know him. Yeah. I know him from what was he in Bridesmaids? Bridesmaids, where he was Rebel Wilson's brother. So, Rob, what's the score of the game? Uh, it, <laughs> hey, for, first of all, Great British Baking Show is the peak of human civilization. Amen. It's still six to three, Kansas City. <laughs> In the third quarter. Great British Baking Show is just one of those you can just, it's not a typical, what I love about it, it's not a typical um, 
reality show where each, everybody's cutthroat and the judges right. are nasty and mean. No, that's what I love about it. All uplifting. Yeah. They're like, do you need a yeah. hand? And they put their tea down and they go help someone. Because they're like, well, I don't want you to lose, you know, because you, you know, so you good. seem to be having a hard day. I want you to lose because I'm better. I mean, the worst you got is Paul going, you know, the sponge is a little dry. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, that's pretty yeah, He's good. always like, oh, it's a bit clumsy, isn't it? Right. He's just like... <laughs> <laughs> See, I, d- I don't subscribe to Netflix, so I'm just lost. That's all right. You're a, you're a functional adult because you, you don't watch that show. Because as soon as it comes on, I'm like, whoa, this is all we're watching. <laughs> uh, so uh, I do know that through the um, Plex accounts that people tend to share, I do have seasons one through four I can go watch. And we're, my wife said, well, we need to just check that out because I'm like – you do know you're going to go down a rabbit hole with this if you start watching. We'll be binging this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, great. Welcome it's to a, it. It's a good way to spend your time. I've also cooked a number of really good baked goods after. I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that Belgian confectionery. Let me look it up and give it a try. They love raspberries in their stuff. Raspberries they isn't do. like everything. Uh, rhubarb, too. I'm trying to think of other. But I love raspberries, so I'm I'm okay with it. So, Rob, Rob, get happening. <laughs> we have raspberry bushes near our house that just finished their season. So for mm. like a month, it was a so pint good. of raspberries a day, just fresh off the vine. My wife is the baker. You're the candlestick maker? I'm the candlestick maker. <laughs> She's the baker, but she'll do all the pastries and all that, makes all the cakes and the cheesecakes and all that. It's my job to just maintain substance. So this scares me. She'll be looking at this stuff. Next thing I'll be having all these cakes everywhere. What did she bring me the other night when we were recording? Stodgy. That's the word they use. The stodgy. sponge is a bit stodgy. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think of the word they use. <laughs> See, he doesn't listen to me. I'm used to this. It's a, a, no, a what lemon did you, what did you get? What, what did you get? I'm, uh, now I want to know what she brought you. She brought me a lemon uh, cupcake with a lemon curd uh, injected with Ooh. lemon buttercream icing with the lemon curd on top with lemon zest. And it really sounds way too lemony, but oh my. I don't think there is such a thing as way too lemony. That's like <laughs> that way, too, amazing. way too rich or way too handsome. Like, yeah, technically it could be a problem, <laughs> but... <laughs> We said this on the last show, but we did a butterscotch cake. It was like a butterbeer cake. No. You take a cream soda and put it into the cake mix along with butterscotch jello powder. And oh then we gosh. made homemade butterscotch uh, sauce and we did a poke. We poked the holes poke in it. Pour, yes, poke cake and poured the hole. Uh, poured the sauce into the holes, refrigerated it, then make our own whipped topping and then poured more drizzle on top. Ta-da! How was it? Amazing. So I, I would love the New England version of that, which is cinnamon and nutmeg and maple syrup Ooh. Oh. and apple, right? And it's like Ooh. cold and the leaves are all red right now. And you just get this apple maple syrup cake, you know, with like a cream cheese frosting. That, that would be the way I yeah, would go once right the, now. Once the world is not upside down anymore, we're going to go to Boston. We're going to go to this restaurant called Eastern Standard. We're going to skip dinner, go straight for dessert. They have a... Butterscotch bread pudding, which basically is like a sticky toffee cake. Mm-hmm. It's all like butterscotch and toffee, but it's like so sweet, but not too sweet. And it has ice cream on the side. I'm just going to have two of those for nice. my... That's all you need. You guys are invited once we can fly again. I'm in. Hopefully that restaurant makes it through. That is, that is worth it. It's a really good restaurant. It's like a modern interpretation of a 1930s uh, Parisian bistro, which Marty, I'm sure you immediately know like what I'm talking about. Oh, of course. Yes. (laughs) 
And just to, just to point out, we started the show talking about what Rob cooks, and we have circled all the way back. All the to way food. back. But that's not where we're going to end, though. That's not where we're going to end because, as always, with our first time guest, and Lindsay, since you're our first time guest, Rob's already been through this, but we're going to make him go through it again. We're going to play our game of Rank 'em. We're going to give you three items such as chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. You're going to rank those any way that you want. Then tell us why you rank them that way. Do you understand the rules of this game? I understand. Okay. You're better than, yeah, better than me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you kick us off, Tony? All right. We're going to start off with something that would be near and dear to the font typefaces of the world. Rank Comic Sans, Times Roman, or Courier. Oh, <laughs> oh you, heard, you heard her. Comic Sans, Times Roman, and Courier. Ooh. Okay. So I actually kind of don't mind Courier. I like how it has the typewriter vibe to it. I, I feel like it has a look, and I, I can get behind that. Times New Roman's going to come in next because... It's serious, but sometimes you need to be serious, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. there's an occasion you just need to put on like a boring suit because that's like what's appropriate for the occasion. And that's what Times Roman is. And then Comic Sans comes at the end because nobody needs that. (laughs) There's there's no need ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm judging it. So Rob, over to you, sir. Please rank those. I would put Times New Roman above, what was the other one? Courier? Courier and then Comic Sans. Because Courier's a monospace font, I think they look really clunky and the kerning is off. They are very awkward. Yeah. Mm. So it's Should hard- we talk about what a monospace font is? Please. Okay. Um, so this goes back to the age of typewriters. Hold on. Before you say it, I want to see if it's the yeah. same thing. Is it fixed font? Yes. Fixed Probably. size font? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where every character is the same width, whether it's a W or a lowercase I or a period. Every character takes up the same amount of space width-wise, which can look very awkward. Most fonts are, are more dynamic. Yep, they close up the space. Like they move the period close to the end of the word rather than having it float out in a distance. And it always bothers me that courier is a mono space. I mean, it, it has a time and a place. If you're looking like a typewriter or you're doing some tables or charts, this is the most boring content you've ever had. Cause we're talking about <laughs> mono, you know, mono space fonts, but it always, it always, I think it has less use than times. But I want to, I want to say something. This is very important to me. When people put two spaces after the end of a sentence, it's because of monospace fonts where there's a lot of space in between everything by default so you need that visual break to um, separate the sentences so your eye can basically tell when it should take a pause but because modern fonts are more dynamic and don't have that same issue you do not need a second space after a period at the end of the sentence yeah. Uh, but rise up, us two spacers. Rise up. Let's get back to the original. Come no, on. No, no, no. She, she told you why. T- Tony, she will cut you. <laughs> With my disappointed gaze. Uh, double People put two space after period, of which I was one for a while, or people who are trained on a typewriter 
yep. between like 1960 and 1990. Yep. Or or were trained by someone who was trained on a typewriter. Yeah, I learned how to type on a typewriter. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember it was a manual. And then when I took typing two, we got to upgrade to the electric, the Ooh. IBM Selectric, baby. But but didn't you have <laughs> contests? And we and wow, my Rankum has spun off big time. <laughs> but any, but didn't you ever have contests in the typing class to see how many letters you could get stuck together? Oh, no. <laughs> no, we would try to hit them all the keys at once and see, who, oh, who got the most? I got 13. <laughs> So actually, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but typewriters in their weird keyboard are designed to minimize that. Mm -hmm. Right? That, you know. Why the letters are. Yeah, why they're part of what. Yeah, so like Q is on one side, which you rarely use. And, you know, Mm -hmm. like basically letter frequency meant you were going left, right, left, right quite a bit so that you weren't jamming everything in the middle as you learned to type. That would be smart. I thought that QWERTY was like. A brand. It was originally made for what Rob said. And then um, the the best, the most efficient is the uh, door. Yes. And I tried to learn it and I I couldn't do it. I could not unlearn what I did, but I knew people that did and dude, they could type like the wind. It was amazing how much faster they typed. Yeah. But I, at this point I could not unlearn tens of thousands of hours of typing to learn a new one. So Marty, do you really need to rank them or you just want to jump on? Let's move on. No, I want to, I want to rank mine because mine is also courier at the top because I did a lot of software programming early on. And that fixed font was very important because I needed the tabs and spaces and everything to line up because it was easier to right. read code. So that's my number one followed by times Roman. And like you said, comic sans has no place even existing anymore. <laughs> and then for me, I'm going to mimic Marty. Other than the reason why courier is on top is just that nostalgia, that dot matrix feel like making how it looks so for me courier then times and then I, i'm done with comic i used to love it and i'm i'm over it all right here we go so on the last episode we just made fools of ourselves tony and i talking about classical composers oh, and God. i thought i knew my stuff and i don't so we're going to make ourselves look like fools of again uh, fools again here are the three to rank and we'll start with rob this time monet picasso van gogh <laughs> i'm a fan of monet I like his impressionist work. I like his water lilies. I like his blues and greens. Van Gogh, I put second. And I would put Picasso third, even though he was a modern artist, one of the few artists who became famous during his time where he could actually make money off his name. And he did push it. I, I find 20th century art um, a little harder for me to process. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the art ran into a problem when they invented the camera. Because what do you do now? Because everyone can take a picture that's better than what you can draw. So you saw Impressionism, you saw Modernism and Postmodernism and Dada and all this stuff. And while I think it's interesting, it's not my sort of art. Woohoo! I remembered something. That was good. That was good. I'm going to show my ignorance in a second. Go ahead, Lindsay. <laughs> I actually like all those three. I would have to put Van Gogh at the top because I was, I was a huge fan when I was in college taking a lot of art classes just because of the the energy and movement in the work. I thought that was very cool. I'll put Monet second because I have a, a print from a, a Monet exhibit that I saw in Boston um, when I was in college, hanging in our house still. Picasso's only at the end because some of his stuff is, is a little weird. Like the cubism stuff is, is hard for me to get behind. But he does have some really cool stuff. Like some friends of ours have a poster of his that's like 
just like a very simple line drawing, like a figure line drawing. And it's really beautiful and very organic compared to a lot of his stuff that he's known for. But but yeah, I, I'm a fan of all three. All right. So my ranking is going to be based on how many of the original arts I have seen um, based on being able to travel, do cruises and things. I think I have seen more Monet than Van Gogh than Picasso just going traveling in Europe. So that's it. I'm going to keep mine simple. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm going to do Van Gogh first because I actually like some of his prints and art and everything uh, like that. If I was to see a Monet, I, I looked at some of his stuff and was like, okay, I've seen stuff like that. But here, here's a question, and this is for 80s kids. So Lindsay, this, this may not be you. Do you know what Monet painting I know more than anything else being a child of the 80s? This is going to be maybe a deep cut. Has to do with the movie. I hope you're not going with Ferris Bueller. Yes, that's not Monet. That's not. It's not. That's Monet. Surat. Is the one they're looking at? Man, I looked it up. The park. <laughs> what is it? Sunday in the park with George. Sunday in the park with George. It's a uh, no. Sunday in the park. Oh, it's George okay. Surat. It's pointillism. It's in the Chicago Museum. I'm hyperventilating. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> yeah, Tony can't even talk. He's like off mic. <laughs> Never mind then. So anyway, <laughs> then my my third's gonna be uh, Picasso because I I just I just don't get it. So <laughs> they're they're well, both impressionists though. They're they're, they're both the impressionists along with Monet and you know. No, I I I think that's fair. Don't don't also, save him. I, don't save I think him. it's worth pointing out that my my parents had a a Picasso like print or poster or whatever in my house growing up, like in the hallway where you would walk in like from the garage to the house every time you came in. And I was so terrified. Like my whole life, this was on the wall and it was so scary looking. There was like a decapitated bull's head and like all this craziness going on. Oh, wow. Yeah, let's move on from this one. That was that was an epic failure for me. All right, go ahead, Tony. <laughs> well, I do have a quick, Lindsay. So I'm we're heading, if everything gets back to normal, where I get to go to Paris next year. Ooh. And should I, should I go to the Monet Museum? Because we're kind of put that off to the side based on, going to because we're going to the louvre i highly recommend if you are, want to check out art museums to go to the musee d'orsay because it is um housed in an old train station and i think the building itself is just as beautiful as the art in it it is epic the louvre is great and the collection is amazing but it's a little like the Times square of art museums <laughs> Right, yeah, like you're there yeah. and there's just a million tourists and cameras and people with umbrellas and like voices yeah. and you like you have five seconds in front of this, you know, and, and then you get shuttled along to the next thing. Like it, it, it yeah, it's a little Mona bit. Lisa's going to be smaller than you expected. Yes, I was going to say that's that is like I walked in there and going, that's it. Is this like the small print yeah. version? Where's the large version? It's yeah. only like that big. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, when we visited the 16th chapel and you're like. Really? You know, you. I was expecting this you huge scene. I didn't know. We went a couple years ago. We took the kids. I honestly didn't know that there was so much on the Sistine Chapel. Like, I, I mm-hmm. thought it was just the, you know, where you see the God and the finger coming together. I didn't realize that was such a small part of, like, a big thing. Live and learn. That one was done by one of the Ninja Turtles. So. <laughs> yeah. To help Marty along, it was not Donatello. Was that Donatello? Okay, never mind. <laughs> it was it was Monet. <laughs> <laughs> no. Eighty right. child. 
Yeah. It's a good thing we only have two apiece or we would never get through this rankum. Okay. All right. <laughs> Here we go. So we'll start off with Lindsay again. Fall color leaves, crisp autumn air, candy apples. Are those just Yankee Candle scents? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I wrote Because I, I feel like they might be. No, they're not Yankee Candles. It's... It's you rank them however you want. I'm not going to explain what they are. <laughs> Fall color leaves, Chris Autumn Air, or candy apples. Those are all really good things. A few of your favorite things. <laughs> Those are definitely Yankee Candles. Oh. There was a whole line based on the song. A whole line oh, of candles. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say the colors first. Because even though I've seen every year of my life, I still get excited to see the bright orange trees and I'll like point them out to whoever I happen to be with at the time. I like the crisp autumn air, but like to an extent because I can get really cold. <laughs> but when there's just a little bit of it, it's great. I would eat a candy apple. I would rather have it, an apple covered with like chocolate than caramel. But I, I wouldn't say no to a caramel apple. All right, Mr. Davia. Air leaves apple. Final answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the crisp autumn air. Like I walk out and I'm like, this is it. Like the no humidity. This is why I live in New England from mm-hmm. September 10th to October 30th first. Right? Like this, everything, everything about this is just like the rest of New England weather can be a mess. And then as Lindsay will attest, if I am walking on the sidewalk and there's a crisp leave, I will crunch it with my foot. I will walk out of my way like a five-year-old to hit every leaf on the sidewalk to hear the crunchy Pringles noise. And I'm diabetic. Confirm. Uh, I'm a diabetic. I don't want a candy apple. Uh, so yeah, crisp air first because that's the first sign of fall. And leaves don't really change around here until late. Uh, but actually, my second is candy apple because I love those things. And third is leaves because sure they look great now, but those things on the trees eventually end up on the ground, and I have to deal with them. Well, you can take out your lawnmower, lawnmower, lawn, lawnmower, <laughs> lawnmower, lawnmower, lawnmower. Lawn- <laughs> Why is it always so funny? Lawn. How do you say it? It's two syllables. Or it's mower. Lawn mower. Lawn mower. And you say lawn more. Yeah, lawn more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done. Tony, go ahead. <laughs> All right, so for me, it is going to be the uh, crisp autumn air just because uh, I love fall and what it brings. And these are based on things that I won't disappoint me. Candy apples, oh. when you bite into that Andy, candy apple and you get that bruised taste, oh, guys, that's a big disappointment. And as Ooh. Marty said, I know I'm going to be disappointed having to pick up those pretty colors off the stupid, and they're killing my new grass. Oh, I, oh, the leaves. I can't stand that. So that's le- the from how I am least disappointed by things happening in the <laughs> fall. I don't even want to play with my last one. I, I, I'm, shoot. Okay, oh, fine. Come Here's on, Marty, come one. on. We will be really fun. nice to you. Here's the last one, and it's because it's also a seasonal thing. Rob, you get to go first. Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, werewolf. Oh, that's a real. I don't have an immediate answer, so damn you, Marty. Uh, <laughs> I still got cursed. <laughs> Frankenstein's monster, then Dracula, then the werewolf. Why? Frankenstein's monster, especially in the book, is a tragic figure and an interesting mm. figure. Like in the movies, he's always, you know, fire. 
But the book is actually a really interesting discussion of what it means to be a person and does he have a soul. And if you read it, it's 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 kind of interesting. Dracula parties. I mean, mm. guy's well-to-do. He dresses well. He wears a tie. He has to be invited into your house. He's got houses all around Europe. Like, he's kind of got it going on. Uh, the werewolf is just, like, a normal dude that, like, two nights a month just, like, goes nuts against his will and doesn't even remember it, right? Like, if you're going to be a raging monster, at least remember it the next day. Like, there's nothing fun about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lindsay. I have the same order, but for, not for, like, any good reason. I just think Frankenstein's monster is kind of cool. Dracula's got, like, he's got, like, a little bit of a sexy vibe going. Well, yeah, that's kind of his thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm on board with that. And then Werewolf, I don't know. He's all right. Just too hairy. Kind of. Yeah. Tony. All right. For me, I'm going to rank them based on the ones I think have the least amount of speech impediment. Dracula, Frankenstein, and Werewolf. <laughs> I love your ranking system. I do, too. Do you, do you guys remember old Saturday Night Live when around the holidays they would have Songs with Frankenstein's monster. monster. Mm, yes. Tonto. Tonto. Who was the third one? Rob knows him. Uh, Tarzan. Tarzan. Oh, Tarzan. Ke- Kevin right. Nealon played Tarzan. Yeah. And when you mm-hmm. say old Saturday Night Live, you mean when the three of us, not you, were in high school or college. <laughs> right. Older than now. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right, so for me, uh, I'm going to do uh, Dracula first because I just love the, the mythos around Dracula and everything like that. And then uh, the werewolf because I also like their mythos and their story and everything. And then uh, Frankenstein's monster because he's got, he's got like this one book. And then beyond that, it's, it's not really used much anymore. And yes, I did say Frankenstein's monster because if I would have said Frankenstein, one of our audience members might have gone, but that is incorrect. It's supposed to be Frankenstein's monster because there's always one. Well, no, I, I would have been that one. Okay. <laughs> we just had an unmatched design contest. We got a number of submissions for Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Every one of them got it right. Frankenstein oh, was the hero and the monster was the sidekick and no one called the monster Frankenstein. Excellent. Excellent. And, and speaking of uh, unmatched, I am s- and vampires. I am super excited about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I cannot wait to, uh, to try that out. And, um, I'll get Tony to play with me. He doesn't know anything about the TV show, but I'll enjoy every, every enjoy every minute of it. Well, thank you very much. That should be out soonish, next month or so. Yeah, it's um, it's very cool. Even if you haven't seen the show, the art is so fantastic. Mm-hmm. We worked with Heather Vaughn, and I'm so impressed with what she did. It's really hard to get a lot of like energy and like action in a static image and. And I really feel like all of these pictures feel like they're going to jump out of the page. It's mm-hmm. very cool. And before we let you go, uh, speak of it, is there anything that you can tease from Restoration Games or, or Rob, any uh, any designs with other companies that you can share before we get out of here? Uh, nothing from other companies. I mean, I got a number of things in the wor- works. Next year is going to be a weird, at least for my design, slow year, because I think a lot of games that were going to come out next year got bumped because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Like things got mm-hmm. delayed or we're going to push this back or we didn't delay this this year. So we're going to do it next year. So like a lot of games I have are all 2022 now. 
Mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. restoration. We're finishing up Return to Dark Tower. We're working on Key to the Kingdom, which wasn't a Kickstarter. We've got more on Match coming that we'll talk about when the time comes. Got an expansion of Fireball Island scheduled? Nothing official. Like we we've had some success, and thank you to all the people who bought them with Stop Thief and Downforce and Fireball Island. So we're looking at expansions for all of them, but nothing we can talk about yet. Well, we could, but you're not willing to. No, like we really couldn't because <laughs> so far many of them are. We should do an expansion. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be there? I did talk about them now. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Well, well played, sir. Well played. Back at me. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank y'all so much for coming on and kicking off this inaugural episode of something that we're going to call by the time this comes out and we'll have a title. Um, <laughs> it was. Thank it you was so really much great. for having us. Yes, uh, and it was. It worked out really well because uh, you two work great together. And I tell you, if y'all are ever at a show and you walk by the uh, restoration booth and you see a bright, smiling face. That's Lindsay, not Rob. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see a tired, sad sack in a tie next door? That's, That's me. Right. That's Rob. <laughs> but, but seriously, uh, two, two of the nicest people in this hobby. Uh, we love having Rob on the show all the time, and it was great having Lindsay on. And, and really, it was extremely interesting to hear what graphic artists do. Again, that's what I that's what I love about what we're going to be doing with this is I want to find out all these things that people do that we don't even know about. And even even from a designer aspect, Rob, there's still things that you do that we just don't even know what goes on in the process of designing a game. So that's kind of the whole purpose of this is to see how in the world does a board game go from somebody's mind to being in a table in front of us to play. I think it's an interesting journey and we can't wait to dig in deeper with a lot of other people, but we're so excited to have y'all as our first guests. And I can't wait to see Rob. If he keeps the beard with a tie, he'll be like professor Rob. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I had to put on a jacket and tie the, uh, for a tongue in cheek zoom meeting, like presentation last week. And I had the jacket and the tie and the beard. It, it worked. I was very, very 50 year old professor. So, <laughs> <laughs> and how's 50 treating you, Rob? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> no, it's been fine. Other than literally my 50th birthday was the peak of COVID cases in Massachusetts. Oh. Like we had a party planned. We were doing a murder mystery. We had rented a whole bed and breakfast where we had a caterer and a theater troupe coming in. And we were going, we were having 1920s dinner and we were planning and they're like, nope, take in. At home. So turning 50 while my son and my second child is a senior in high school while there's a uh, pandemic has just been the midlife crises of midlife crises. <laughs> oh, I bet. Oh, yeah. But aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, what do you think of the play? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I like that. Write that one down too. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you guys. As Marty said, um, Marty, did you ask them where they people could find them if they wanted to find them besides at Restoration Games? Or well, since you stuff? just did it, do I really need to say it? <laughs> These days, you'll find us in our house. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening. And let us know what you think about our new series, At the Table. Come back next week for our regular episode where we'll talk about Guildmaster, Raiders of Scythia, Seastead, and I'm going to do a book review.